Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 23rd, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. Paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Polymarket is the leading information markets platform where you can trade on the most hotly debated topics, whether it's politics, coronavirus, current events, and more, all on the blockchain. With over $130 million traded on the platform, Polymarket is the go-to place to settle the biggest debates of the day. For a limited time, sign up with referral code UNCHAINED to get your first trade reimbursed up to $100. Today's guests are Mike Belshi, co-founder and CEO of BitGo, and Jeff Horowitz, Chief Compliance Officer at BitGo. Welcome, Mike and Jeff. Thanks for having us. Great to see you again, Laura. It's been, been a long time in this industry. You've been through it thick and thin. <laughs> I really haven't. It's been so fun. It's honestly been the ride of my life, and I've just loved every minute. Um, all right. Why don't we, before we get into the discussion, why don't we just start with a basic description of Bitco? Bitco's also been around uh, forever, um, but just for people who may be new to the space. Mike? Sure. Well, let's see. Bitco got started uh, in, in one of the early generations back in, in 2013. Started out, you know, technology company, pioneered multi-signature technology, which is used, you know, almost everywhere today for securing large amounts of digital asset. We've grown to support uh, over 20 different blockchains, uh, several hundred tokens, um, provide infrastructure to a large portion of, uh, of the ecosystem, continuing to push forward on security and compliance. I guess that's why we're here today, talk about low compliance. Uh, we are regulated a trust company in two different states, both South Dakota and also New York. We also have regulated entities abroad to about half our business here in the U.S., half outside the U.S. And um, uh, I think most recently, you know, uh, BitGo and Galaxy have have agreed to merge. Um, so that that deal is still in progress, uh, hopefully closing in, in not, not too long. But that's uh, that's where we're going next. And that's that's all about institutional adoption, digital assets. Right. And so it's a little about a little about BitGo. And so speaking of institutional adoption, Jeff, you spent many years in traditional finance before making the jump to crypto. Um, some of those years were at Pershing, City, Lehman Brothers, Goldman, and then you did spend time at Coinbase before joining Bitco. Why did you decide to leave traditional finance for crypto? 
Uh, great question. Uh, you know, after being 25 years doing, you know, some of the same things every day, sometimes you'll look for something entrepreneurial or a, a little more innovative. And when I received the call to join Coinbase, I hadn't really researched crypto yet. But in taking the call, I figured I had to do some homework and I find myself getting really enthusiastic about what was the promise of crypto? What could it do? And to have a seat at the table to help shape regulation for a brand new asset class was just too hard to turn up. And it's been exciting three years in the space and really looking forward to what the next five years will bring. And so what do you do as a chief compliance officer? And how would you say that that or how would you say that compliance in the crypto space differs from that of traditional finance? Sure. I think the first question that gets asked when you're talking about crypto or regulation is, is it only used for bad guys? Why do we need it? You know, Venmo and PayPal and other, you know, payment processors are, work fine here. And I think the answer is it's a global uh, challenge. We don't have PayPal and Venmo around the globe. Uh, it's very expensive to do remittance. And uh, so the first thing I do is, you know, I set up an AML program, right? How do we identify and find the bad actors? How do we report them to law enforcement and have a risk-based, reasonably designed compliance program? And the other part of my job is working with regulators and whether that's getting new licenses, uh, running a program which needs to have uh, trading compliance, surveillance, AML, policies and procedures. It's very similar to traditional finance we're overseen by the New York DFS. They don't have a different rule book for us than they do Citibank or Bank of New York Mellon, who they also oversee. So it's really combining what you've done in traditional finance, but in a fast moving and brand new asset class where some of the technology is just different than uh, the traditional market. And Mike, since Bitco started, you know, really as um, like a crypto custody company and, um, you know, obviously like you were really a big pioneer in that. How would you say crypto custody differs from being a traditional financial custodian? Well, as Jeff said, you know, in a lot of ways it shouldn't, but a big part of what we do is help regulators kind of through the process, right? So look, we got into this space because we do see the opportunity to make a financial system that is far superior to what we've seen in the past in terms of transparency, in terms of fairness and equality. And also being global, as Jeff said, this is the first time we've really had the pipes connected around the planet. So this creates a lot of confusion. You know, people look at, at digital assets and they're like, this is just different. I remember the first time I, uh, it was one of my early pitches to traditional finance was out at, at JP Morgan. It was really kind of an exploratory. They were learning what, what crypto was, is probably, I don't know, 2015 or 16 or something like that. And just describing how, how digital assets work, what is multi-sig, how do the private keys work, all this you start to see the light bulbs go off where they get it. And and when I started to segue that with like, well, here's how the traditional markets work and here's how they should think about it, you know, they could start start to relate to it. I remember asking them afterwards, like, why why am I teaching you guys about like how market structure in, in uh, digital assets should work? And, and they just said they've been so confused because it's such a different asset class. Uh, the technology is so foreign compared to what they'd looked at before. So look, it's no surprise. I think we've all gone through this curve as we get into it. And it's it's a fascinating space because there's so many different angles of digital assets from, you know, decentralization to, you know, what is the private key storage to how do distributions work and, and, and whatnot, that it's going to take a lot of education. And we're definitely seeing that now from regulators. So 
you know, kind of back to the chief compliance officer role, I would say actually on one hand, the compliance officer role is probably supposed to be similar to what you'd see anywhere else, but actually in digital assets right now, it's different. And, and the thing that's different is it's problem solving. It's helping regulators understand, you know, what's the metaphor between a particular activity in digital asset space compared to traditional markets, and then helping them get over the curve of like accepting like, yes, even though the technology is, you know, kind of upside down, frankly, compared to how the banking system works, that we can, we can actually manage these and we can have safe access and we can, you know, fulfill what we're trying to do as, you know, keep regulators and keeping money, money transmission safe. Yeah. And, you know, and what you said, like, it sounds like a huge piece of that is education, but obviously what we've seen in recent weeks uh, with this huge storyline around regulation and um, this whole fight that went down over the crypto provision of the infrastructure bill, I wondered how you felt that education piece has been going because the industry even though it's it's still fairly new, you know, it has been around for a while. Um, companies like yours have existed for a while. So I just wondered what your sense was of the understanding of the technology um, from regulators. Well, look, I applaud the Senate for trying to understand and, and working toward it. I think what we saw here in this bill was a lot less to do with crypto as it was to do with politics. Uh, as you know, they were spending a trillion dollars on an infrastructure bill and they needed to have ways to show that they were they were going to bring revenue uh, coincident with that. And they, they decided to to go and look in, in the crypto sector. And I think what they thought was going to be relatively easy peasy, they realized, wait a minute, this is more subtle and complicated than, than we thought. And, and in particular, that bill uh, would have classified a bunch of people that are clearly not brokers uh, as being brokers. Um, so, you know, making a payment in digital assets would now classify you as a broker, you know, being a miner, all these other activities, it, it clearly doesn't, doesn't match. So I think this was more of a artifact of having, uh, done that very quickly. Um, they're in a hurry to get the infrastructure bill out. Um, hopefully that's for good reason. And this kind of became a bit of a tag along, but now on the other side of it, I think there was a huge win for the digital asset space, uh, Bitcoin crypto. Um, with this, the senator saw firsthand, you know, how passionate people are about democratizing money. And this is a uh, an area where we were able to mobilize we the the, the crypto digital asset community very very quickly. Um, obviously, a lot of uh, very technically technically capable people, but mobilizing on Twitter, they heard our our voices loud and clear. And I think, uh, if anything, the best outcome for 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 us in particular is that. In the future, they're going to be seeking out, hmm, what is my position on digital assets and crypto and how, uh, how should I be thinking about that for my constituents in a way that this can help them? You know, obviously they want to get elected. I think they've, they've recognized that like this is a force that really, really matters. Actually, I did want to ask about one point and what you said where you said that um, the language would have included some people that were clearly not brokers. And I think you're right that at least for some of those roles, um, the way the regulation was written, uh, whoever wrote that did not intend to capture people such as minors. Um, but I wonder if there is contention about whether or not or how to tax 
people participating in DeFi. And um, I did wonder if maybe the way the language was written was intended to capture those people and that that is a fundamental difference in the way that some regulators view how the space should be regulated versus how the industry views how those people should be regulated. I think there was more of a lack of education than a targeted uh, view of, of DeFi. Um, a lot of the reports came out that Janet Yellen and, and Treasury was advising some of the senators on the language. I do think they have an alter, you know, a, a behind the scenes view that they want to regulate the space as much as possible. But the way to do it for a tax bill and to rope in uh, either, you know, miners or stakers or validators uh, was not the best way to do it. And, you know, I look back to March of 2020. Secretary Mnuchin, who was a crypto critic, actually did convene a meeting of some of the same folks, uh, leaders in the crypto industry, in fintech, and some traditional financial services to discuss, you know, what were the risks in the space? How do we not stifle innovation? And it was all around, what are we going to do about unhosted wallets and the travel rule? And it was a really good dialogue. And it was literally the week before uh, the country shut down for, for COVID. But then you fast forward to December and we had the midnight uh, regulatory uh, report come out about transaction reporting and it kind of undid everything that we thought we had a good dialogue about. So I think we have fits and starts um, on the open dialogue and trying to educate. Uh, but this was another example of trying to rush regulation or legislation without partnering with the industry to get a better understanding of what it is they're asking. I don't think the industry is against uh, people paying their proper taxes, but those are most likely exchanges who can do 1099s. Um, I don't like legislation that makes it impossible to be compliant with. And I also wondered, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people were saying that that appeared to be driven by Treasury. And I imagine as a chief compliance officer, maybe you interact more with kind of the rank and file regulators, presumably maybe in the IRS. And I wondered, do you have a sense of what their stance is on how this should be done? I mean, like we intersect with everybody, uh, multiple FinCEN directors over the last couple of years. I mean, I sat in on the Mnuchin meeting, you know, representing compliance and regulatory. So it starts at the top, um, but it is also the the policymakers in between. And, and some of them have moved around government. Some of them are now advisors at FinCEN, come from DOJ. I think the challenge is there's always a rush to do this and it's not in a timely manner and the industry needs to mobilize. We sent 7,000 letters the last week of December uh, to stop regulation coming out that we just couldn't be compliant with. That regulation is still floating around Washington and we're waiting for it to be reissued, but hopefully with some better definitions and something that achieves what the regulators are looking for. That's how do we manage the risk, but how do we not drive all this innovation offshore lose jobs. And I think that's part of the conversation that's happening now in Washington. Yeah. And I was also going to ask about when you mentioned FinCEN, obviously the original FinCEN guidance, you know, was pretty clear in applying to companies that take custody of customers' funds. And I wondered if you felt that that was wavering because um, it does feel like in various places, both, uh, you know, not just in the US, but even um, like FATF, that maybe that line is is not as clear as it used to be? I don't think it's wavering. I think the FATF has done a couple of reviews, the Financial Action Task Force. Uh, you know, they're the global body that's trying to set some global standards. 
Um, it doesn't apply to companies, but applies to countries. And the U.S. is a leader at the Fed if they actually help form it. So I don't think Treasury is going to back away of wanting more transparency in, in reporting. We just need to figure out a safe way to do this that we don't cause other problems. If we centralize some of this travel rule reporting, it will be a honeypot of information. That's not a good solution. There are six or seven leading vendors that are trying to come up with a solution. We're part of and a founder of the U.S. Travel Rule Working Group who's trying to do it with within the U.S. with uh, companies that are all regulated under FinCEN as a money service business. So we're on an equal footing. And long term, we're going to need to have an interoperable solution. But that's not going to happen for a number of years. There are privacy concerns or cross-border data concerns. And really, the conversation needs to happen is, how much is this helping law enforcement? Are we going to do reporting for the sake of reporting? Or are we really going to partner and help law enforcement? And I think that's the open question that the industry and the regulators really need to grapple with. Okay, yeah, we'll get more into FATF um, stuff, financial action task force stuff. But I actually want to ask one more question about this crypto provision in the infrastructure bill. Mike, I saw you tweeted that the bill claims it would generate $30 billion in tax revenue, and you thought that that was preposterous, and you said you suspected it would be closer to $50 million. So why, why do you think that? Well, I, I think in the U.S., actually, most participants in digital assets are, are law-abiding, tax-paying citizens. Um, so the bill is hoping to capture, to get additional reporting to somehow capture people that otherwise would not have paid their full taxes. So um, it's got a premise there, which is that, that somehow this is not happening. I don't know where those numbers came from. As I did back of the envelope math on trading and you know projections of how much is in the U.S., it, it didn't get close to 30, 30 billion. I admit that you know the fifty million number uh, was was kind of just like this as well. I don't I don't have any data behind it, but my point is is that like it's very easy to come up with some numbers here, um, but we don't really know or have a way to vet out whether that that was a, a good estimate of how much revenue could be generated by doing this. So anyway, that, that was the, the genesis of that. Okay, yeah, I mean, like it, it would be kind of hard to estimate that. Just because you would need an inside look at the books on certain exchanges, I would imagine that would kind of be the the main way, right? You'd also have to know like how much of that is ha- how much of this activity is happening with U.S. taxpayers versus people that are abroad. You know who's subjected to it. What are the cost basis of, of these transactions? And I I think you know when you see an industry that's had such a positive uh, success story in terms of growth in such a short period of time. And we've never had an asset class grow from, from zero to this um, before. Um, there's a natural tendency to think those people might not be paying their taxes, and especially right now in the political environment where, you know, obviously there's a lot of spending going on. People are talking about, you know, whether billionaires are paying enough or where we're going to get money from. It makes it an easy target, but, you know, it doesn't mean that we should, you know, abandon our job of actually collecting data and figuring out, look, is this going to work for raising revenue or is this just, you know, uh, fitting in with the hyperbole? It doesn't seem like a lot of diligence was done given the speed at which this came together and given the lack of details behind the $28 billion number. Hmm. Okay. All right. So let's dig a little more into this financial action task force stuff because so this is like a global body and it's been looking at ways to handle DeFi. And um, the FATF 
tends to target its um, guidance against what is called what it calls virtual asset service providers or VASPs. And traditionally, as I mentioned before, those were defined as those that custody assets. Um, so before we get into kind of the full discussion around this, Jeff, do you want to just give us some background on, um, you know, what these FATF rules are and how they would apply to a company like Bico, which does custody assets? Sure. So I attended some of the original FATF plenary uh, private sector, public sector meetings uh, going back to uh, late 2018 when they started contemplating what would a travel rule mean and how do we define a VASP? And I don't think they were far off on their definition. Um, you know, we're a custodian. We move assets for customers. There are exchanges that move assets for customers. I think where we ran into trouble, though, is how do you define customers of VASPs and the privacy concerns with we're now tasked with sending information uh, from one VASP to another. How do you know what VASP that is? All we have is addresses. It's not like the SWIFT network which is what they based the travel rule implementation on. And that took nine years to build. You know, a rule came out and banks worked on it. We are still in the process of, you know, uh, writing regulation for a white paper. And that's just not the right way to go. So I, I think the definition of VASP is, is the right definition. Uh, as a global industry, we are working to define that. And how do we share information in a secure way? Some are doing it in, in closed loops, just between three or four um, uh, exchanges or custodians. A lot of them are being designed regionally. There are a number happening in Singapore. We've got one in the U.S., and I'm sure there'll be others in Europe. Uh, the biggest challenge, though, is how do you define who exactly is a VASP? Are they regulated? And are you comfortable to share information with a VASP that's regulated and pick your developing country? versus a framework like we have in the United States or Europe or Japan, where they've spent time trying to figure out what is the best way to regulate. That's the big conundrum we're trying to face because we're dealing with customers' information. And the way the rules are written, we're required to send information on non-customers. They did not consent that we would share their information with another regulated entity. And so we need to balance all of that with the money laundering and terrorist financing risk uh, that does exist out there. I just don't know if all of this data sharing is really going to get us to the end game. We're all regulated. We can all receive subpoenas. Do we really need to share that information to help law enforcement? Well, yeah, I mean, it is, first of all, sensitive information. And then second, you know, it sort of gives this picture of a huge global surveillance network. Um, <laughs> but I did wonder, so because uh, under this travel rule, VASPs would be required to send personally identifiable information or what's called PII. How do you do that for crypto transactions? Cause I, I don't know, you know, exactly how this works where like, could that then associate a person with particular addresses on particular blockchains? And, you know, I'm sure it creates different risks. So can you talk a little bit about, um, the security risks and how you guys are trying to mitigate those? Sure. No, it's a great question, right? So as a regulated exchange or custodian, we're subject to KYCing our clients. So we have that information on the beneficiary. What the rule is uh, proposed is that we send information on the uh, recipient. And so I need to go out to an exchange and say, do you own this address? You do. Oh, great. This is who my customer wanted to send it to. I'm now going to go into a private chat somewhere and we're going to share information on that client. Now, 
that exchange that I, or custodian I'm sending it to, if that information gets lost in transmission, it's not secure, it's hacked, somebody now has an address and a customer name. And yes, you can unwind that and figure out how to read the blockchain and figure out that this customer was a whale, this customer is whoever. That doesn't happen in traditional finance. You know, JP Morgan's customers or JP Morgan's customers or name your bank. Um, and it's not out there. It's only in this network, which has rarely been hacked, um, sharing between two banks. That's where I'm really worried that we're trying to have an open and honest conversation with Treasury that we could create a bigger problem than you're trying to solve if any one of these steps go wrong. So that's why here in the U.S., we've started with regulated VASPs. We have a process to vet them. Are they regulated? Have they had you know, AML and KYC concerns? How long have they been in business? And we need to do that before I'm going to trust to send my customer information or any other uh, VASP is going to do that. We're then going to go down and, and do some pen tests and check security because at the end of the day, the biggest risk here is that data gets out there on the internet and you can now take a look at the blockchain. That's the whole point of crypto, right? It's, it's pseudonymous. It's out there. And law enforcement, just in the recent cases today, is able to look at IP addresses and uh, blockchain stuff and figure out who the bad guys are. I don't know that we need to do the travel rule to solve that problem. And if I can add a little bit here, it's kind of reiterating Jeff's point, but there's a big change, which is because it's a digital asset. So if you were to go back in time to before travel rule was was ever a thing and they were determining whether or not they should implement travel rule, they didn't have to worry about exposure of travel rule data exposing your entire balance at the bank. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a risk. But if they implement the same travel rule that we have for traditional finance with digital assets, that now becomes a risk where your entire financial history could be exposed because of compliance with this law that actually was designed for a different system. So because we have a different system with digital assets, we need to rethink not only like what does the regulator need, but what are the risks that accompany the collection of that data, however it gets handled. The second thing which has changed, and we've all seen this over the years, I don't think the regulators have fully um, acknowledged it or acknowledged their contribution to it. Look, security is a huge problem. Digital security is a huge problem for our industry, whether you're talking about digital assets or whether you're talking about information privacy or whether you're talking about corporate corporate espionage. I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of uh, digital security that we're now tuned into that we weren't in the past. The idea that this information can leak uh, as a result of government collection of data is real. We have seen the government hacked and all personnel data from the military be leaked out onto the, the internet. We have seen Equifax leak all personnel data from all of their the, the clients reporting credit information to them. I mean, these are huge, massive failures. And, and why do these things happen? So unfortunately, to just take the rule that was created a long time ago, before we had this awareness around digital security and apply it today as though those risks don't exist, I think it's, uh, it's a real misjustice to the people um, if we don't reevaluate kind of how we're doing that and the risks. And just to make it clear for people, um, so when I use an exchange and I either I take a payment at that exchange or um, let's say that I have some some crypto on my own hardware wallet and then I deposit it, you know, maybe to sell it or whatever, there's like a particular address on whether it's like the Bitcoin blockchain or um, Ethereum blockchain where either like a, a particular 
I mean, on Ethereum, you would call it an address or account. I guess on Bitcoin, it's it's still an address, I guess. Um, but those kind of change a lot, I guess. Uh, but anyway, but the point is that um, that's associated with your account at that exchange. And so even though, you know, exchanges will kind of like commingle the funds in a hot wallet um, and, you know, they always kind of, you know, keep it keep account of what your balance is on their own ledger from the outside, looking at the blockchain, there can be a way to identify a person's own funds, even in this like commingled uh, kind of state. Is that That's right. correct? That's okay. right. And there's dozens of companies that are, are building solutions to be able to analyze blockchain data and figure out who's who. Um, as you point out, I mean, identifying who is the exchange is a little bit less sensitive other than it, it, it could have a particular user at that exchange being identified. But when it's going out of the exchange to somewhere else, that's where you can really like expose a tremendous amount of data. So these analytics tools, though, are also an interesting concept. Remember, we don't have analytics tools in traditional finance. There's no way to go and, and look at this data. It's all private, right? So they created the idea of travel rule in part because they didn't have other tools, right? Now, if we live in a world where, A, we have a blockchain, so we can build these tools, which gives us a view that we've never had before. And by the way, this has been working already. I'll give a couple examples in a moment. But, you know, in near real time, you know, particular movements of money can start to be identified. Uh, there was a hack on the liquid exchange yesterday. You know, some of those addresses are being blocked already and instantly, right? That never could have happened in the traditional finance system. A, we're, we're, we've got new tools that we never had before. And then B, applying the same old solutions is creating new risk vectors, in terms of leaking people's personal information and personal finances, um, and then also creating honeypots of personally identifiable information, which frankly, and you mentioned earlier about like regulators having slightly, you know, different views or is this undoing FinCEN or whatnot, you know, pretty much every regulator is looking at crypto in different ways. And it's no surprise that as they start to make definitions so that they can write their rules, that you sometimes see those definitions conflict. This is not new to crypto, right? We have lots of conflicting rules on the books between state laws, federal laws, and international laws about what different roles are. And especially when you think about things like GDPR and being an American company, it actually turns out to be hard to navigate a line where you can comply with all of the laws that you're required to comply with. So, yeah. Yeah. That is I, coming <laughs> as a result of everybody trying to change all at the same time. Yeah, this is clearly um, not not an easy issue to resolve. <laughs> All right, so in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about these fat off rules. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's sponsor is Polymarket, the world's leading information markets platform where you can trade on the most pressing global questions, all on the blockchain. Choose from a variety of markets. Will Cardano support smart contracts by October? Will the U.S. have more than 200,000 COVID cases per day before 2022? Will Trump run for president again? With over $130 million traded on the platform, Polymarket is the go-to place to settle the biggest debates of the day. Want tomorrow's news today? Use Polymarket to see real-time data on what the market thinks will happen. No fake news, no pundits without skin in the game. Think you know more than the market? Trade on your beliefs and earn a return if you're right. For a limited time, sign up with referral code UNCHAINED to get your first trade reimbursed up to $100. Go to the description and click on the link to get started. polymarket.co slash unchained. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. 
Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Mike Belshi and Jeff Horowitz. So, um, as so, you know, this whole discussion we've had about FATF has been, uh, you know, for, uh, companies that do custody assets, which was, uh, who the travel rule was initially targeted to. Um, but here we have now this emergence of DeFi and in DeFi, it, it's not really the same thing, right? There's <laughs> instead of traditional intermediaries that are custodying customers' funds, we've got these smart contracts. Um, so how are regulators looking at that? Are they looking to regulate that? Are they looking to redefine VASP in order to um, be able to target such things? Um, you know, how do, how do you see that they're thinking about regulating DeFi? So I think first and foremost, it, it's back to education. Um, it, just when you thought you might be getting a handle on, you know, layer one on-chain Bitcoin or Ethereum, boom, in come smart contracts to really blow your mind. Um, and, and, and it's a new level. Um, now, there's some, some things being done at a, at a legislative level there. Um, you know, Wyoming is now starting to recognize the potential for a DAO, a smart contract, to maybe be a, a thing. Um, I think we could end up that way in, in the long run, where actually a counterparty can have a legal status, even if it's code. Um, but that's still coming. Look, DeFi is really only a couple of years old now. So it's no surprise that um, uh, we've got got less information around it. You know, we were talking about travel rule all the way back to, you know, 2013 when we got started. It was kind of like this, you know, uh, elephant in the room. How How is travel rule going to be applied to digital assets? Um, we're farther along now, but, you know, it's still not, not fully finished. And I think the same is going to happen with DeFi. We do see uh, industry starting to to push for um, different types of smart contracts that may require identity to be built in with them in order for the smart contract to interact with you. Um, that's going to have some technology impacts. That's going to have some regulatory possibilities, both both good and bad. So I think this space is still evolving. I hope that they let it evolve a little bit longer before we start clamping down too much because, as Jeff said earlier, like, we could end up just pushing all this stuff outside of the U.S. It still it still happens. It's just that now now you've got no opportunity to participate, and it hurts Americans and it hurts American business. Yeah, and actually going back to the travel rule as applied to companies, like here's one thing I did want to ask was, so what would you like to see in terms of how the travel rule is implemented and how this sensitive data gets passed around, or even uh, you know the extent of uh, what data is passed around? I was going to say, I actually think that travel rules shouldn't apply to digital assets because we have a blockchain. Since you have the blockchain and you have the forensics that last forever, I think we really have to question whether or not you know it still applies. Um, I know that might be a little bit hard for regulators to accept, but you, know, you got to go back and think about what was the purpose of travel rule, and then you have to say what did it accomplish and how is it working. You know what what crimes and activities is it catching today, 
in traditional finance that are not being caught yet in crypto. And if there is a big gap there, let's go look at that gap. But to say, we're just going to apply the same reasoning, I'm sorry, the same solution without thinking about the inputs and the risks, et cetera, I think actually ties everybody up for no good reason. I agree with Mike. I think we need a kind of crawl, walk, run solution here. We don't want to do a travel rule if we're forced to do it uh, because of enforcement or holding up new licensing. Uh, I think the industry has come together that we are trying to partner and figure out the best way to partner with law enforcement and what data do they need. But uh, I think we got to go back to the original premise. You know, FATF is setting global AML standards. If every either VASP or custodian has an AML KYC obligation, we're doing proper sanctions check. You don't need to send the data to do that. I've done it on my part and the, the customer on the other side has done that. Sending the data is just a risk. I don't know how it really helps law enforcement given the way our technology works. I don't know how much of a choice we're going to have in the end game, but I've been lobbying and pushing for a sensible solution and let them evaluate and come back and go, yep, this is helping law enforcement or not. You know, at the SEC and others, they have to do a review of did a new rule actually help? And I think they need to do that in some of the rules that they are uh, putting on the crypto industry. Because uh, at the end of the day, we need to be smart about the time and resources we're putting to the putting towards this. And if we just send a lot of data, either directly to the government or to other exchanges, right? I don't know what it's going to do. I don't think the government looks at all the SARS and all the CTRs and VCTRs that we filed today. So why are we doing reporting for the sake of reporting? Yeah. And a SARS, I can't even speak, suspicious activity report, a CTI, I forget what that stands for. Uh, currency transaction report, which is what, you know, AML and the travel rule and all these things were, were based on it when you're sending $10,000 in cash, uh, or cash equivalent, you're supposed to file a report. So essentially the solution that you're advocating for is one in which investigators just look at the public blockchain. They have their forensics tools and then they use other tools at their disposal, such as subpoenas or, or they can look at the SARS reports that you file or whatever it is. And you think that that's sufficient. I think that's fine for where we are today. I think we could get into some additional reporting, but not the way these rules are laid out. There's too many variables. There's not enough definition. And until we're at a level AML playing field, there's no way for me to know who's a trusted VASP or not, right? But to get into the SWIFT network, you need to be approved and you need to be a regulated bank. We don't have that global solution yet. And I think that's what's going to hold this up. And I think we're doing a little cart before the horse. Let's focus on if everybody is regulated properly, they're examined, we can then get to this next layer of how do we safely send information that may help law enforcement. I think the global template is important to consider here as well. You know, travel rules started here in the U.S., but FATF has picked it up. Uh, countries are applying it abroad. The, the global financial system is getting connected right now. It used to only be available to the likes of J.P. Morgan and the large banks, but now it's available to everyone. So if the U.S. implements this and all other countries follow suit, which is more or less the path that we're currently on, that means American Informa taxpayer information is going to be sent out abroad in order to be compliant with both U.S. and foreign policy. Does the U.S. have control over all of the entities outside the U.S. in terms of how they will protect that information and take care of it? I mean, we all know that, of course, they don't have the ability to do that. 
But secondarily, think about whose hands your information is going to fall into if you actually implement this. And this is something that they didn't have to think about with the, the, the current U.S. law, but it, it's very much important for what's happening right now. So as far as I understand, though, the this FATF travel rule, I mean, that's like an adopted, uh, you know, uh, form of guidance at the moment. So it's being rolled out. I mean, I, I did see a report saying, yeah, that maybe like a little less than half of jurisdictions have actually begun implementing it. But I mean, it, it almost seems like the ship has sailed. Is that correct? Or do you feel like there's uh, a way to stop it at this point or? Yeah. So they've published their guidance and it's written into their guidance, but their guidance is not law. It now is up to each country to adopt those FATF standards. And if they don't, they can end up being you know, named or shamed that they're deficient in a number of FATF best practices. But no country is fully compliant with all of the FATF best practices. I don't think they're going to back away from it, but I hope that the fact that they've continued to have the dialogue, they've postponed saying that they need to take a closer look. How are companies being compliant? What are the issues with being compliant? That ongoing conversation will help us develop one of these solutions. The fear I have is that certain countries have been reluctant to license uh, crypto exchanges or custodians because of this FATF rule hanging over their head. But to Mike's point, until we have a global interoperable solution, we've only solved a small piece of this puzzle. So I think we can continue to chip away at it. Here in the US, we are driving to adopt a rule um, and come up with a solution for that rule. The US travel rule is looking to start testing in October, um, but it's a small subset. It's 30 VASPs here in the US, but it's a good step. And it showed Treasury and FinCEN, look, we understand that rules need to apply to us. We are giving our best efforts, but we need to continue to talk about how the technology differs and what are those challenges. I think Commissioner Clayton and others had said, uh, we have a rule book that works. We don't want to rewrite the rule book. I think we actually need to change some of these rule books. We didn't have some of this technology. We didn't have decentralized smart contracts. As a country and as a you know, a financial industry, we need to adopt. And had we stifled the internet in the early days, we wouldn't have Amazon and the Ubers of the world that have changed and made our life easier. I think the same promise for crypto of can we move assets around the globe, cut out a lot of the middlemen and make it cheaper. We need to make sure that we continue down that path. And so just going back to DeFi, then what would you like to see in terms of how DeFi gets regulated? That's a great question. I wish I had a great answer. Other than uh, from what I've heard, the regulators are starting to turn their heads towards how do they surveil decentralized protocols? How would they apply regs and rules? Uh, you know, some of the recent enforcement actions have, have come out and said, I didn't care whether you were half DeFi or partially DeFi. There are some controlling people and that may fall under the securities rules. So uh, you know, somebody who is 100% totally decentralized, I don't know that the rules could apply, but I don't know if we have any of those yet. There are still people behind some of these protocols that help make the decisions. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, we do need better consumer protection. We need better disclosures so that consumers know what they're getting into. But I don't know if we need to do that for AML purposes or suitability purposes, but I think the regulators here in the U.S. are not giving up on uh, decentralized regulation. 
I also think there's a first pass of of this that actually industry will take on on its own. You know, you can't deny that there's some element of reputational risk with with working with unknown parties. So industry, in order to participate at a large level, is going to need some amount of help for this. And I think they'll come out with at least part of the solution by itself. I think DeFi is too early to really say, hey, here's the prescriptive route. Um, if we do that, we could end up with a, a very complicated um, rule set that applies to some technologies, not others, and, 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 and also um, stifles innovation in America. But let it play out for a little while, uh, see what industry comes up with. If industry stays away and doesn't participate, um, then you know, that might actually answer some of the questions itself. But DeFi is definitely in the earlier stages than, than than other parts of digital assets. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like we don't even know what it's really going to look like. So, um, so one other regulatory question I did want to ask about was, um, as we've seen in recent months, there have been all kinds of warnings and actions from regulators against Binance. And um, I did see Jeff that you did an interview with CoinDesk talking about how Binance US hired Brian Brooks, the former acting controller of the currency, and you call that a smart move. And I just wanted to get your reading on his abrupt departure departure, and just in general, sort of this moment in time for Binance and the kind of situation you think it's in. Sure. So I had the privilege of working with Brian for over a year at Coinbase. And, you know, even when he was the controller, right, uh, he was doing a lot to try and manage risk, uh, come up with a you know, a way forward for the industry to allow it some room to to grow and breathe. And we'll figure out what does regulation mean along that path. You know, the brief conversations I had with Brian uh, before he left, you know, he was trying to operate a standalone business here in the U.S. I can only tell you what I've read, uh, you know, out there that it may have been falling uh, apart around uh, his uh, fundraise and that he wasn't getting the funding that he was trying to achieve. And that may have led to his departure. Brian's a smart guy. Uh, he understands both sides of that coin. And if Brian couldn't be successful, uh, I have my doubts of who could turn that around. Look, certain firm, BitGo and, and Coinbase and others, right? We took the long road. We uh, work with regulators on sensible regulation that will work for this industry. Um, and others haven't. And I think the the level playing field is starting to happen now that you can't outrun the the long arm of the U.S., and we've seen some of those uh, enforcement actions. And that the best thing for the crypto industry is sensible regulation where people feel trust and that their assets are safe. And that's one of the things that Bitco focuses on in our you know cold storage and safety of our customer assets. So um, I don't have too much to add in there. I'm looking forward to see what Brian does next. But I think uh, long term, we need firms to embrace regulation that helps the entire industry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe the writing is on the wall for Binance. I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, all right. So let's talk about Bitco. There's been so much regu- regulatory news. Um, obviously having you here on the show was a good opportunity to cover that, but obviously Bitco had the big news about the $1.2 billion acquisition by Galaxy. And that was the first crypto deal greater than $1 billion. And I was wondering, Mike, if you wanted to talk a little bit about why you thought that was the right move for Bitco. Sure. Well, we've seen a tremendous growth on the institutional space, you know, within the last 12 months. Um, you know, Bitco has been after institutions, businesses, you know, kind of this side of the 
uh, of the uh, the client segment since our beginnings. Um, and in some ways, you could argue that maybe you know Bitcoin institutional access was was too early back in 2013 14. Um, but this last year, we finally started to see you know it's really it's really growing. Um, and and uh, to get there, um, we want to do more. So Galaxy has also been after the institutional mission. Uh, they've got a fantastic team that you know. A lot of them come out of traditional traditional finance. They've got a great trading product. Uh, they've got great investment products. Um, the combination of these two firms is going to take the the, the tech that BitGo's got, um, apply it to the the knowledge that they've got, and really hit hard on the institutional space. So we're building a very strong industry leading technology company. Um, I don't think there's anyone in a, in a better position to build a technology first, you know, prime brokerage for the future, um, and uh, that's what we're after to do. And tell, talk a little bit about kind of where the institutional market is at. You know, there was a period in uh, a long time ago, like 2017, when we would often hear the phrase, the, the wall of institutional money is coming. Um, it didn't quite happen back when people originally said that. And then it looks like it's actually um, started to pick up maybe in the last year or so. But I was wondering just, you know, what are you seeing now? Um, how are different institutional investors thinking about the space? And, uh, you know, what are they interested in? Well, I think even when you and I spoke, like, you know, I, I always said it would never be a wall. It would be like just a, a growth. And, and I think that's what we've seen. The, the line has been heavy, um, you know, this last six, nine months, which is great. But of course, it's, it's, it's not some, you know, binary on-off switch step function uh, that's going to happen. But no, I think the, the backdrop of coronavirus actually has had pretty much everybody on the planet rethinking their portfolios and what they mean. Um, secondarily with Bitcoin now over 10 years running. I mean, you know, frankly, how much money are you going to put into a system and it's only five years old and, you know, people have all these questions, whether it's regulatory or technical or security. It was just hard back then. Today, a lot of those objections are gone, but we now also have a very uncertain future in terms of the traditional assets. So uh, anybody that's been building a portfolio on a 60-40 mix of, you know, stocks and bonds transitioning over time, they have to rethink it. Um, obviously, the stock market has had a very good run in recent years, um, and everyone attributes this to money being super cheap, incredibly cheap, and printing a lot of it. And everybody's waiting for the shoe to drop on that. We, we know it's going to happen sometime. We just don't know when, and we don't know how bad. On the bond side, you know, outside of the U.S., I mean, it's negative yields completely. Even inside the U.S., you know, you, you can't make any money off of uh, – off of cash. So people are looking for an alternative. And if you have a model that requires you to return money to your retirees or investors, you know, you're thinking like, how am I going to meet that model? We've got pension funds that are going to go belly up unless they figure out something to do. They simply will not have the funds that they are legally required to distribute to their, to their, to their um, investors. Um, so to, uh, to crypto's surprise, yeah, some of the most conservative uh, assets out there, investors out there in like retirement space with uh, endowments and with um, uh, pension funds, they are absolutely looking at crypto. So all of this has made it so that pretty much every sector of institutional, whether you're talking about hedge funds, whether you're talking about long-term investments, whether you're talking about uh, family offices or high net worth, uh, everybody's looking at digital assets now. Um, the more aggressive of those already have made their investments. And, uh, and and we just see more coming. So I think that's why this last 12 months have been, been so strong for, for, for crypto and digital assets. 
And as you see this part of the industry develop, how are, how do you think um, the institutional part of uh, this industry can compete with traditional financial services firms that are trying to get into crypto? Oh, well, I mean, that's, that's the great thing about what we're doing. This is software. Um, and, you know, software, when it gets into an industry, it has a pattern of completely upending it. So uh, we get to rethink how pretty much everything works. And, you know, I, I ask questions all the time of people. I say, hey, who, who here, raise, raise your hand if you love your bank. And nobody ever raises their hand. Um, you know, the, the fact is, is that these, these institutions, you know, on the traditional side were built a very long time ago before we had technology. And then, you know, through regulation and through conservatism, you know, con- being conservative, um, they, they just haven't gotten to where people want it to be. We now have a global society. We are connected uh, informationally in ways we've never been connected before. Um, and we need a financial service, a financial system that's, that's for the future. So the other thing that's happening, I mean, you know, we're lucky we're here in the U.S. We might be concerned about fiscal policy here. But, you know, if you're abroad, you know, you have real questions, um, depending on where you live, about whether the money that you earned yesterday is going to be useful to you tomorrow. And this happens over and over again um, when, when people are in charge. So, you know, can we use computers to apply fiscal policy in a way that, frankly, humans aren't as good at doing? And, and I've said this one before, which is, I think, exciting. I think the longest standing unchanged fiscal policy in the history of mankind is Bitcoin. Uh, think of any society anywhere that had a fiscal policy that stayed constant as has for a period of a decade. Um, I don't think it's happened. So, you know, that's a tremendous opportunity for, for what the future can hold. And it also comes with transparency. And it also comes with smart contracts we, we can barely even imagine. Uh, all of the combinations of um, better service that we're going to get going down the line. And the crypto markets have really ballooned this year with the total crypto markets hitting $2 trillion again. Recently, a year ago, they were at less than $500 billion. And as the industry grows and as companies such as yours begin custing larger amounts of crypto, such as perhaps one day $1 trillion worth or more, how does that affect security practices? Oh, great question. You know, at, at our roots is security. It's where we started really kind of at a nuts and bolts level. You know, you're never done with security. You just keep raising the bar. So, you know, one thing that's happened in terms of bringing more people into the space is we've had to address how do you secure assets for fiduciaries that are holding money on behalf of other people? So we're huge believers in the benefits of decentralization. But we also want the industry to be able to participate everywhere, which sometimes requires more centralized storage. Would you want a trillion dollars stored in a single wallet or under a single vendor? Not really, right? So we've got to split that apart with backstops and insurance and ways to handle disasters. The industry is getting smart about this and we're, we're seeing it. So crypto technology is going to get better. It's going to allow us to have decentralized holding of assets. Um, it'll be interesting to see how regulation and legislation keeps up with that. Imagine a multi-sig wallet today that has a key in the United States, a key in Canada, and a key in Europe. Whose jurisdiction is that? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not trying to be uh, difficult for the, the regulators, but do people want their money protected by the um, judicial system of multiple co- countries? Absolutely they do. And it gets much more complicated than that. So we'll see things get more more decentralized. And 
uh, in terms of um, having any single vendor with with trillion dollar wallets, of course we have to kick backs up to that. Part of what's happening is you're seeing safety funds get built, um, and a couple of protocols have had safety funds that they actually needed to exercise. You know, it's early days. There's still been some technology failures, some security holes, right? But I think we're going to find ways with technology where certain amounts of profit is held in publicly visible, you know, safety funds. Um, and this is basically insurance, but now you can see it on chain and it's, you know, kind of as you go, you build it. I think we're going to get good at this over time and it's going to create a safer financial system in the end. Well, speaking of finance, I guess that was uh, one of the first exchanges that did that, right? Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so now switching gears, Wrapped Bitcoin is a staple in Bitco's business. And um, Wrapped Bitcoin actually accounts for more than 1% of Bitcoin's circulating supply. And obviously, we're seeing people wrap their Bitcoin so that they can participate in DeFi on Ethereum, mostly to chase yield. Have you seen the drivers of that change in any way, especially since you know we're not in the kind of crazy DeFi summer that we were in last year? Um, it hasn't really come down. It goes up and down with price, I suppose. But in terms of the number of coins, you can see actually it hasn't hasn't really come down significantly. Um, I think it's got real utility in terms of a centralized storage of this. Um, you know, as it grows, we're going to have to to do other things. Whether that means splitting across custodians in a, in a still central way, um, or hopefully get to more of a decentralized technology for holding it, one of these things is going to happen. Like you, you, you simply don't want to wrap all of the world's Bitcoin and then then have a, a big honeypot. Like we, we work too hard to decentralize this to, to create that that model. Um, so it will change. Uh, one interesting thing that's that's happened as well there though, and it's it's related to anything that's a stable coin. Um, and, and of course WBTC is a stable coin of Bitcoin as opposed to a stable coin of dollars. Uh, is what happens when when things go wrong? There was a hack at some I'm forgetting which one it was. It was just a few weeks ago and some wrapped Bitcoin, you know, no fault of wrapped Bitcoin, but, you know, a smart contract with, was hacked and then they it reached out the to Poly us. It was the Network one, I think. There we go. Thank yeah. you. So, and they reached out to us to freeze the asset and the wrapped Bitcoin smart contract does not have an, a capability to freeze. Um, we did not want that responsibility. Uh, we think that's a centralized, you know, uh, digital asset technology that, that, that we don't want. Now, when most of the uh, U.S. dollar-backed stablecoins are uh, implemented, they pretty much all have freeze capabilities behind them. What this means is that, you know, there's a single party that can freeze any asset regardless of where it is in the world. Um, and this is a little bit like, you know, taking your email and instead of storing it personally, storing it now at Google and then having someone subpoena it from Google instead of from, from you. The, the same thing is happening with stable coins. So this is an interesting development. I can see why regulators might like that. That's one-stop shopping. But in terms of centralization, I think it's, it's not really the direction that we want to be in. So another hot topic right now is NFTs. And we are seeing investors, uh, like including a number of hedge funds that have been investing in these digital collectibles and I wondered, do you see BitGo ever doing something like custodying NFTs? And if so, how would that differ from custodying traditional crypto assets? Absolutely, we do. I mean, custodians uh, can hold all kinds of things from art to fire trucks. Um, so uh, there, there's no reason why we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. 
it's an emerging space. I think it's uh, it's just getting started. You're starting to, you know, the early days of NFTs, people associate with art, 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 art. You're starting to see people realize, wait a minute, this is about proof of ownership and provenance, right? As those things come true, a custodian is perfect solution. Um, so of course we'll be supporting NFTs in, in a myriad of ways, um, and helping people secure them. Um, another big trend this year has been, well, actually last year and early this year has been corporate treasuries holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets. And I noticed actually in the last few months, this has been kind of more rare, uh, of a new story. And I wondered if you had any insight into what the slowdown was. I think it's still pretty difficult to put on your court balance sheet. So, you know, I mean, the two big prominent ones, we've got, you know, MicroStrategy, obviously, um, he's got a corporate strategy around being a, a Bitcoin asset to and of itself. Um, you've got Tesla, um, which I also think, you know, Bitcoin is very much a for the people type of thing. Um, Elon has built a tremendous brand uh, that people love. It doesn't surprise me at all that he would associate with Bitcoin as a way to, to, to build his brand. But I don't think most companies really want to have commodities on their balance sheet. It's not to say that Bitcoin isn't a great commodity. We, we carry a lot on our balance sheet, but that's because we're in the space. And we know what we're doing. Typically, you don't see companies really investing in gold or other things. So there, that could change as you know the, monetar- the, the monetary situation in the U.S. changes if you really do need to get away from, from fiat. Um, which I think is going to be a growing concern. But in terms of why companies have done it so far, I think it's been more about kind of the brand wins and uh, positioning than than it is about actually wanting to have uh, assets on the balance sheet. Okay. Well, so I know you can't talk too much about the Galaxy acquisition, but, you know, obviously you have an important role in the industry. And I just wondered, you know, from your perspective, where do you think the industry will go uh, through the rest of the year or what do you expect to be the major storylines? And and this is a question for both Mike and Jeff. Jeff, you want to take this one? Sure. So look, we're excited about the merger um, and you know we can't get into too many specifics, uh, but both Mike and I will have prominent roles at the combined firm. You know, I think Mike said it early, right? It's Silicon Valley uh, meeting up with, you know, uh, Wall Street. And that's a powerful combination. Um, you know, they're very good at trading. We're good at security and custody. Um, they've got a number of businesses, asset management, investment banking, and you know, the combined effort of those two. If you really want to do prime brokerage, uh, prime brokerage infrastructure, you need a custodian to do that. And the combination of the two players will be uh, a force to reckon with um, as the institutional adoption grows and as we get more creative in the space. You just mentioned NFTs. Right. There's a whole host of uh, new and emerging technologies and ones that haven't even been thought of that will end up on the blockchain. So we hope to be a player in all of them. Mike. So I think we're going to enter a a great build phase. I think uh, in general, the interest is here to stay. I don't see it going away. The institutional interest in digital assets is is not wavering at all um, in spite of the the price drop. Um, Really, it's more about timing. It's about continue to figuring out logistics of how they're going to participate and how they're going to provide that to their clients. So all it's all good. And then with uh, DeFi evolving, with NFTs coming, um, with the next wave of, of layer two on, on the Bitcoin side, uh, this is going to be a great couple of years of build and grow. Um, I, th- I don't think we're really going to enter into a crypto winter quite like what we entered before. 
because I think we've reached a critical mass. That's not to say it's not going to be volatile. It's going to be hugely volatile. But I don't think we're going to quite see the uh, kind of the, the two-year bearish uh, period that we've, we've seen in the past. Yeah, I've actually been thinking the same things because it's like almost like the space is getting too diversified now for that to happen. So, yeah, well, we'll see if we were right or wrong. <laughs> to check we'll back that. in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people learn more about each of you and Bitco? Easy to find, uh, bitco.com. Um, and as we move to, uh, to Galaxy, it's galaxydigital.io. Um, so uh, anyway, happy to connect. Um, you can find us there. I think Jeff is easy to find there as well. Um, and uh, happy to answer questions for anybody that's, uh, that's got them. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Mike, Jeff, and Bitco, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.